And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Before we start, Bruce and I just wanted to say thank you to our friends at Trader Joe's who are back as our presenting sponsor again for 2019. Stu, not just the uh, the place where I get my favorite dessert, the awesome Hold the Cones, the little mini ice cream cones that you and I have talked about, but uh, it's good because it's something where we shop every week and to have them part of the Audible, we couldn't be happier. They've been with us since we started this back up in August of 2017. They've been a great supporter of ours. Thank you, Trader Joe's. Welcome to the Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman. This is our first episode, Bruce, since the night of the national championship game. A lot has happened in college football, a lot of big stories. Yes, I was not at my best that night. I feel much more rejuvenated. It's been kind of chaotic with a lot of coaching turnover. I'm sure we'll get into that soon. Yeah, we didn't uh, intend necessarily for this to happen so late in the week. So, But just more and more news kept happening in college football, and we wanted to be able to react to all of it. So, gosh, which story should we start with? Oh, I know. Clemson visiting the White House. What? No, I don't want to, no, 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 no. We're not, we're not going there. How about, how about we talk up start? I just had time. one question for you about fast, the fast food Clemson visit, which is Why are you this. doing this? Why are you doing this? Okay. Trust me, it'll be very down the middle. This is not specific to, to the actual Clemson situation, but I'm saying, okay, you, Bruce Feldman, you've been, you, you're being honored. You've been invited to the White House. I assume you've never been to the White House. No, I have not. So this will be an honor. And for the festivities, they've announced that the theme is going to be fast food, like it was for Clemson. And you can pick the, the three fast, any three fast food chains in America you want them to serve at your dinner. What would they be? Oof. Man, you know I have not had, like, McDonald's or Burger King ages. So Clemson got McDonald's, Burger King, uh, Domino's, and Wendy's. You know what? I got to admit, I'm, I'm not against Domino's. Like, I actually, you know, I, I like, I'm okay with Hawaiian pizza from there. I actually like it. It's good hangover food. By the way, <laughs> this this is probably, like, one of my go-to hangover meals is, like, a meatball sub from Subway. Like, this is, always been, is this a current hangover meal or back-in-the-day hangover meal? Sadly, this is not too far from the current hangover <laughs> meal. So, yeah, I don't know. I would put that in there. You know, I like Jersey Mike's. Can we call that fast food? Are we calling Subway chains? Yes. Fast food? Yes, we are. Those would be like, I like Jersey Mike's. I feel like I'm leaving it out. Can we call Torchy's fast food? My only concern there would be that, that is that a national chain or is that only available in Texas? No, it's available. Like there's, they're, they're in Oklahoma and they're in other parts of the Big 12. Okay. If they serve it to you behind the counter within a few minutes of you ordering it, then it is fast food. Yeah, then I'm going to put Torchy's top of my list there. I'm going to want... Shake Shack is a tough call between Shake Ooh, Shack is, and In-N-Out. Yeah, yeah. Shake Shack is really good. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna watch Shake Shack. I'll go Jimmy John's, as we know. I love Jimmy John's. 
And um, oh, there's a dirty four letter word coming with you. Please tell me you're not going there. Dirty four letter word. Like, Actually, it's a fi- it's not a four letter word. It's Arby's. So Arby's. Yeah. Um, no, Arby's doesn't quite make the cut there. Oh, Chipotle. I want. So that's what I want is my three there. I want Chipotle, Jimmy John's, and Shake Shack. Okay, fair enough. Can we talk college football now, please? Yes. The only reason I decided to do that was because I know we're going to talk a lot about Alabama and Alabama-related things on this podcast because they're always in the news. And I thought, like, at least some sort of Clemson reference first as, like, a, you know, in, in deference to the national champs and not the team that lost. But let's be honest, there's a lot going on. We are recording this literally an hour after you had a very juicy story go up about all of the staff turnover going on in Alabama right now. And I think, uh, obviously, the lead is catching a lot of everybody's attention. Staff meeting last Friday. Your story, why don't you tell it? Yeah, so it really starts with the big curveball. We've seen a ton of turnover on the staff with Nick Saban. It's been a staggering amount over the years, and it's been – One of the things that kind of awes a lot of people that not just he's had the greatest run in modern college football history, but that he's done it with so much turnover. And you look at it, you know, I mentioned this in the story, you know, a little further into it is Pete Carroll at USC loses some of his key assistants. Eventually that thing starts to backslide. Urban Meyer loses Charlie Strong, Dan Mullen. That thing kind of starts to crumble. Bobby Bowden lost Mark Richt and Chuck Amato and went from this amazing run of top five finishes to falling really like off and Nick Saban won five national titles, four different offensive coordinators, just guys have come and gone and he and Scott Cochran, the strength coach and Jeff Allen, the uh, sports medicine head have really been able to keep it on track. And so what you have is a lot of guys have come and gone. And as I'd reported in the story, even before, never mind before the Clemson game, even before they beat Oklahoma and and the orange bowl, is my understanding that they were expected maybe six or seven assistant coaches were going to be moving on, not just Mike Loxley to be a head coach, but other guys were going to be in transition. The curveball in all of this was going to be the guy replacing Loxley as the offensive coordinator was Dan Enos. And Saban and everybody inside the program had been very effusive in the job he'd done with that quarterback room. And so last Thursday night, there were some rumblings that Dan Enos was a candidate that I had heard for the Miami offensive coordinator job. And also it had been subsequently reported, I believe uh, Matt Zenitz from AL.com had also reported that he was a candidate for the Georgia vacancy. Well, you know, in my head, I'm like, well, he's not going to leave Miami. He's not going to leave Alabama because he's got two back for another year. And those stud receivers are all back. It's tons of firepower for him. He's not going to leave there. Well, then the next morning, sure enough, he was leaving. Now, people inside the Alabama program Friday morning knew that. As of a morning staff meeting that Nick Saban was about to have, and they were supposed to interview prospective offensive line coaches because they had to also replace Brent Key, who was going back to his alma mater, Georgia Tech. Nick Saban's like, hey, where's Dan? Where's Dan? And then all of a sudden it became where the bleep is Dan because everybody knew he wasn't going to be there except for Saban. And then they tried to, you know, looked in his, his office. It was completely empty except for a pencil. Maybe he went, moved into the new Loxley office. That was completely empty. So at that point, there was the big curveball. And really, you know, less than a week after that, you know, as we reported, as we're taping, you know, a day ago, Tosh Lupoy, the defense coordinator, he has taken a job with the Cleveland Browns. So 
a lot of turnover here. I suspect, as is mentioned in the story, there may be one or two other assistant coaches from this staff who end up leaving before spring football, maybe sooner than that. So it's an interesting time, coupled with them getting blown out in a way a Nick Saban team at Alabama has never gotten blown out before. I think what's crazy about all this is that when there's a mass staff turnover like this, and especially when in some cases it's not there out of their own volition, you would think like they're coming off a disastrous season. They went 14 and one, one, you know, reached the national championship game. That would be considered a wildly successful season for almost any program in the country. And yet Saban is, you know, clearly displeased with it or specifically his defense and his defensive staff. Now we, we don't see what goes on behind the scenes of practice every day, but it sounds like Tosh Lupoy was in the doghouse long before they gave up the points that they gave up to, uh, Oklahoma and Clemson. So it's really, as your story said, you've got all three kinds of coaching departures going on here. Mike Loxley getting a head coaching job in Maryland, that's an obvious one. Dan Enos going to Miami, that's a little puzzling. And then him, you know, kind of trying to create soft landing spots for some of the assistants he's not high on after this ostensibly really successful season is making for, I think, a, a unique situation and one that obviously begs the question, is this the year? Is this the, you know, what, what, there has to reach a point where there's too much turnover for even him to overcome. Is this it? I don't think so because he's still there and because they are loaded offensively so much. And remember, and I think we talked about this on the podcast and I think it was something you brought up maybe a couple of weeks ago, which is people forget they were down six defensive backs. Their top six defensive backs are gone. You know, they were at three returning starters on defense and, they lose their best pass rusher, Terrell Lewis. On top of that, they lose their best cover man, you know, midseason. There's a lot of stuff stacked against them. I'm not, we should not be surprised they struggled with Clemson's offense the way they did. We shouldn't. Now keep in mind, that's basically the same amount of points that they gave up against Clemson previously, whether they had, you know, Jeremy Pruitt was a defensive coordinator or Kirby Smart. I think the part that's probably a, was really eye-opening was just that the offense struggled the way it did, had the turnovers the way it did, and that was part of it. But I think just I still think they are too good athlete-wise right now, and I think that Saban system is so in place that I don't see. You know, people have predicted his demise. I remember you and I were, you know, did one of those Fox shows. I don't remember what was the thing that even. You know, maybe it was losing to Ohio State with the Ezekiel Elliott game. I don't remember what it was, but people were like, oh, yeah. Or maybe it was losing to Ole Miss. I don't know what it was, but there was like a time or two, like four or five years ago, where people were like, oh, yeah, Nick Saban's in his 60s. Now they're going to fall apart. And it was they when, I think it was when he lost to Ole Miss for the second year in a row. That's it. End of the dynasty. Yeah, we can't even remember what it was for sure. <laughs> it was like, it was laughable, right? And I think now, I think now because they got blown out in a way they hadn't and because Last year, six new assistants come in. This year, it's probably going to be seven. You know, it's going to be interesting. But, you know, for whatever you want to say about, you know, how well Kirby Smart's recruited and, hey, Jimbo Fisher's over, you know, in College Station now and LSU has recruited well and they're positioned to be really good. I just don't see it coming right now. I just don't see them toppling. And maybe, you know, like you said, it's bound to happen at some point. It, it really, you think it has to. I mean, do you think it's going to be? Here's what I'm starting to think. I think next year's team is too loaded to screw up, right? As long as Tua is your quarterback and he's still throwing to Jerry Judy and, and um, Devontae Smith and all those guys, 
Jalen Waddle, and Najee Harris is your running back. They're not going to go eight and four all of a sudden, no matter who they end up. He ends up hiring to fill out this staff. I think where it starts to have an effect is in recruiting. When different guys are out on the road recruiting every single year, and so I guess the question is maybe the next year, right? When a presumably Tua and a whole bunch of those other guys go to the NFL, is that where you start? Is that where the the bottom starts to fall out a little bit? Especially because, like you said. Who knows how much Jimbo Fisher might have it rolling by that point. Kirby Smart might have it rolling by that point. You know, would Alabama at that point be, God forbid, 9-3? and three? Well, uh, you know, what in the interim, so one of the moves, and this is in our story, is Steve Sarkeesian has been brought in. He's been interviewing offensive assistants this past week. Now, there's a lot of familiarity there. He spent a year there. And then he went to the Atlanta Falcons to be the offense coordinator. And actually, he got fired, but they were sixth in the NFL in offense this past year. I think the it, Saban trusts he was the first person to have offered to a Tagovailoa back when I think Tua was a sophomore back in Hawaii. So I think that part bodes well. And you talk to people who know Stark pretty well, and they feel like he can handle this. Everything I've heard is that he's in a you know a better place health wise than he was a few years ago, certainly in the middle of all the USC stuff. So, you know, it's it, like I said, it's going to be really interesting now. You know, we know Clemson is going full bore, right? And that thing is rolling. Yeah, I mean, this might be the contrarian opinion, but I actually think Sark would be a perfectly good OC. He's obviously very qualified for that job. The idea that he's the one to blame for them losing that national title game to Clemson seems a little ridiculous given he got a week's notice. But I get why the fans wouldn't necessarily be thrilled about that. You know, Kyle Flood's name being thrown around, that doesn't exactly inspire confidence. In fact, he had NCA issues uh, at Rutgers, obviously, that, that, you know, led to his demise. So, look, Saban's done this before. The sky may be falling. I'm, I'll believe it when I see it about the dynasty crumbling. But you, you made references in your story to several good examples of when Bobby Bowden lost Mark Richt and Chuck Amato and when... Pete Carroll had a whole bunch of guys. Like, at some point, it eventually falls out. And so, you know, will that be this year, next year? Or is he really just going to keep winning 13, 14 games a year for as long as he wants to? We shall see. Now, let's talk about a guy who was a big part of this run at Alabama the last few years, Jalen Hurts. I I don't know. I guess I didn't have a good read on where. For some reason in my mind, I thought, well, he's going to end up at Miami. I knew Oklahoma was in the mix. I just, I think I kept thinking Miami or Maryland just because... How it's it's so rare for a grad transfer to go into such a high-profile role like that. And here's a case where he's literally going from one of the uh, teams in the Orange Bowl playoff game to the other. But now that it's happened, I'm I'm really excited to see Jalen Hurts in Lincoln Riley's offense. Well, doesn't it make perfect sense now? Because I mean, look, the last two Heisman Trophy winners played for Lincoln Riley, and they both transferred in there, whether they were grad transfers or not. I mean, that's a little bit of a moot point. I mean, I guess I don't know if it's a moot point because they had to sit out here and absorb the system a little bit. But that's interesting. I think when you look at it, I mean, Oklahoma is a team that it was a playoff team. looks like they're a playoff contender. Certainly Maryland, I don't think is anywhere near close to being a playoff contender. And Miami took a major step back under Mark Richt and this past year. So I don't know if they're going to be that close right now to be an, a playoff contender or a challenger for Clemson. So the Oklahoma piece is interesting. It's interesting also because you have two guys who I would not say are prototypical by the old NFL model for quarterbacks. Now, 
Jalen Hurts' size is good, and his speed is obviously really good, but he has been kind of categorized as more of a dual-threat quarterback, and and we'll see how he fits in that system, what they can do with him. I, I did uh, Greg McElroy's radio show a couple of days ago, and he made a really interesting point about this. And he said, you know, if I'm Jalen Hurts, yeah, he knows Mike Loxley at Maryland, and yeah, he knows Danny Nose at Alabama. But remember, those guys didn't give him, didn't name him the starter. I wonder if there's any, any, a little, not animosity, but a little bit of I'll show you going someplace else. And so maybe the familiarity breeds content part factored into that. I don't, I don't know if it did at all, but I thought that was an interesting point he brought up. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just, you're right. It makes total sense. Why wouldn't you want to go learn from a coach who's, who's coached the past two Heisman winners, score a lot of points, contend for a national championship? But I will say that the bar now is awfully high for him, right? You know, people are now expecting Jalen Hurts to go. I saw his Heisman odds are already extremely high. He could have, or if he goes to like Miami and leads them to 10 wins next year, he's kind of a conquering hero. The only way I think that his one year will be considered a success is to, at the very least, nothing has to win the Heisman, but he probably has to go to New York or else he's not on the same level as Baker and Kyler. And he's got to get him back to the playoffs. because if he doesn't, then that's a step down. Yeah, and I mean, that's going to be fun to watch. It really will because of just how dynamic a player was. And remember, he was the SEC Offensive Player of the Year as a true freshman. He played some really good defenses. What's he going to do against the Big 12? Yeah, I think he gets a bad rap because of the way he got, you couldn't get more of a humbling demotion than to be benched at halftime of the national championship game. So I think he got you know, retroactively characterized as a not that a great a quarterback. He's very good. He's a very, he was a very good college quarterback as a freshman and sophomore. By the time he, and by the time he suits up opening week next year, it'll have been another year and a half since that game of development now in Lincoln Riley's system. And we even saw a little glimpse of it, obviously, in the SEC championship game. It's entirely possible that he is a much better passer now than when we last saw him as the regular starter. Yeah, like I said, I think it's going to be fun to watch. Stu, there's an interesting subplot to me for this, especially with Oklahoma and the quarterback situation. A little plug for my own game. If you're around Saturday and want to watch some college football guys, my crew at FS1 is doing the NFL PA Bowl. So it is a game probably for late round picks and free agents. You can see Jay Browning uh, from Washington and a handful of other guys you'll recognize. But uh, I say that to get to this. So I was out at the Rose Bowl for, for practice at midweek, and in the morning I'd seen Jake Trotter from ESPN.com had reported that Oklahoma was blocking Austin Kendall from transferring as a grad transfer within conference. Uh, there was interest with him at West Virginia, and I, as soon as I saw that, I was like, this is not going to end well. It's going to look bad for Lincoln Riley. Coaches and schools who block, especially a grad transfer, you know, it's only a matter of time before they relent once it gets out on, on social media and they start taking a publicity beating. And I don't know, by the time I got home, I want to say it was like maybe three o'clock in the afternoon and I'd seen our friend George Schroeder uh, report that Oklahoma had released him and he was free to go. And, you know, I, I mean, I don't know. I just think coaches have to, you know, no matter how much the situation's awkward for them, whether they play the school or not, I think they got to realize this is a different age. This was a particularly infuriating one for so many reasons. The whole, you know, the whole NCAA rule change that brought about the transfer portal was intended 
specifically to, to be done with this. No more blocking kids. You know, this is the, this is a new era where players have more, you know, freedom and ability to dictate their own futures. And Lincoln Riley apparently found a loophole in it where, you know, they're still free to talk to anybody. Can't prevent them from, from getting a scholarship at a school, but you can still apparently, and not, and only, and at least in the Big 12, you can still apparently try to block them from being immediately eligible, which just comes off as vindictive more than anything. But also, another Big 12 grad transfer literally the day before had gone from Kansas State to TCU. No problems, right? So apparently Kansas State wasn't worried about him giving away the playbook or anything. And then just the fact that it's of all programs, Oklahoma, which has brought in now three consecutive transfer quarterbacks to be their starter. And the whole reason Austin Kendall is transferring is because he's ticked off that they keep bringing in guys above him. So we're going to bring in somebody above you. We're also going to play hardball with you trying to escape. It just came off so petty and vindictive, and and it ended exactly how we all knew it would uh, with him relenting. Yeah, and you know, it's uh, hopefully uh, coaches and, and ADs and everything. And, you know, I think we think a lot of the two people involved is just kind of a head-scratcher. It really was. So it has been QB transfer mania recently. It's not a new trend, obviously, that quarterbacks transfer. I did the story for Fox a couple years ago, and it's about 50% of four- and five-star quarterbacks end up transferring at some point in their career. But it does feel like there are more high-profile guys and maybe a little bit more close together because of the transfer portal and how it's now more transparent. And also just that guys aren't... I mean, Tate Martell could have waited till the end of spring practice and see where he stood on the depth chart, but no, he's transferring now. He's already gone to Miami. Justin Fields already gone to Ohio State. It's just dizzying right now, and it's frankly added kind of a fun component where we never we never had something like this, right? We never had the equivalent of NBA writers tracking down uh, uh, free agent scoops. Everybody's monitoring this thing now to see which quarterback's going where. Yeah, and look, we've seen a couple of instances of guys, and I use the example, another Ohio State-related one, Joe Burrow went to LSU I mean, those guys don't count in the recruiting rankings. Joe Burrow turned out to be a hell of an addition for a team that desperately needed a quarterback and needed a leader of that offense. And by the end of the year, was playing really well. You know, Everett Golson had his moments at Florida State, but didn't have like a great run there. And certainly Malik Zaire really did next to nothing at, uh, you know, when he when he went from Notre Dame to Florida. There's examples, you know, Russell Wilson's a great example of it. We'll see how some of these other guys do, but it's it's fascinating to see because it's a little bit of, like you said, an element of free agency, but it's curious. I mean, I did this, I think it was after we did our uh, last pod, this transfer, transfer portal story, where I just basically went through the portal with another, with a, uh, with a college coach who kind of walked me through it. And there's such limited information. There's really no information about these guys, even if whether they're eligible or not. And so it makes for an interesting off-season subject, though, I will say that. And obviously there's a difference between a grad transfer who we know is going to have a... I mean, Jalen Hurts immediately probably shook up some preseason polls and whatnot because we know he's going to play right away. Tate Martell is probably not going to play right away. Justin Fields, we'll see. Everybody's assuming Justin Fields will get that waiver. I, I don't necessarily know it's a given. Yeah, I don't know either. I don't doubt Tom Mars at this point, though. It's yeah. Values. Well, that's the key, right? Now the guys you know, that lawyer kind of up. The thorn in the NCAA side. Yeah, the, now you have to lawyer up to get that immediate eligibility waiver. Last thing before we get to some mailbag questions. Uh, obviously, Kyler Murray entering the NFL draft was a big deal. I 
started to sense at the Orange Bowl media availability that that's where this was headed. He didn't. He sounded like a guy who was not going to be okay ending his football career. And when you think about it, you know, when he was drafted by the A's, he had yet to be a full-time starter in college football, much less win the Heisman. So a lot changed. So it's hard to say, oh, we're surprised by this decision, but it's very unique. You know this subject better than anybody. Your opinion, is Kyler Murray a first-round NFL quarterback? He might be a late first round. I think the thing that's different about him compared to Russell Wilson or compared to Baker Mayfield. Now, he's faster than those guys, but he's not just short. He's small. Baker Mayfield's six feet, 215, 220. He looks like he's going to have a really good career. Russell Wilson's maybe 5'10 and a half, maybe 5'11, but he's also 215, 220. Kyler Murray's probably an inch shorter than that. He's 5'9 and some change, but he's not 215 pounds. So you wonder about the durability issue with him a little more, but he's fun to watch. And again, he would be the smallest quarterback. who's really, like I said, because he's not just short, he's small to see how he does. But I think the NFL is certainly more open to it because we've seen these guys, we've seen these guys kind of come up and really flourish. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm interested to see how high he'll move up. I think Dwayne Haskins is the clear, number one guy from quarterbacks after that you know there's you know the names it's you know there's a drew lock in there there's will greer there's there's jared stidham i suspect his stock will kind of surge a little bit higher as we get closer to the process but it's a lot of you know it's not like last year's draft with darnold and rosen and josh allen and baker and and, and lamar jackson i mean this is a you know after haskins i think it's i think it's more of a crapshoot it's kind of a perfect storm of circumstances leading to this for Kyler Murray. You know, this this would not even have been a thought, I don't think, if, if, if five years ago, three years ago maybe even. But there is just more openness in the NFL now to unconventional quarterbacks. The offense that he played in is all the rage, as evidenced by the fact that an NFL team made Cliff Kingsbury a head coach. And like you said, it's not a great draft class for quarterbacks if it were loaded with other guys maybe he falls by the wayside but it just seems like you know there's a certain number of teams are going to take a quarterback in the first round at least three right I can't remember there being less than that anytime recently and there aren't three no-brainer first round QBs so if he gets and it is a big deal by the way if he makes it even in the last pick of the first round he's immediately going to make as much if not more money than he would have from that A's signing bonus but if he falls into the second round then it's not as certain, and of course then a team that drafts him in the second round is not as um, driven to make sure he's the starter right away. So I don't know that we'll really know how any of that's going to play out for a while, right? He's got a, teams are going to want to see him up close, pro days. They're going to know what exactly he measures at height-wise at the Combine. We'll see. It's going to be pretty interesting. All right. Ready for the mailbag? I am ready for the mailbag. As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com and speaking of kyler murray michael donlin asks us bruce and Stu, i remember Deion sanders and bo jackson playing two sports professionally but i was too young to remember their college careers can kyler murray play both sports professionally how were bo and Deion able to manage playing two sports and what prevents kyler murray from doing that well number one those two guys were not quarterbacks that is a big point to make yeah, yeah. i mean Deion, i remember pretty clearly would literally like play a, a baseball playoff series during the week and then jet in and play cornerback on Sunday. I guess you could do that when you're a DB. I don't think 
the quarterback has to be intimately involved in the game plan all week. Yeah, it's a much different, a much different dynamic. I mean, I don't know. You know, you've had guys who played it in the minor leagues, whether it was John Elway, uh, Russell Wilson, I think even played some, but it's different when they're doing it at the same time at the high level, you know, like you remember hearing like Drew Henson's name, but these guys weren't at that point in their career, you know, in the middle of it, just like I think when you're talking about a first round pick and then he's also seen as a baseball guy. So we'll see how it goes. I mean, I'm interested. I want to see the football piece of it just because, because he's so much fun to watch. And I think he really was a revelation this year. He proved to be as good as the hype was coming out of, Texas high school football where he's a legend and I think that was fun and I think it'll be fun to see you know because I'm always interested in the guys who are kind of seem like they're outliers I think it's fun to see what Baker is doing in the NFL uh, when these guys are not rules breakers in the sense of rules breakers off the field guys but like just they're changing a little bit the perception of how the NFL looks at things and I think that's a good thing yeah Andy Staples has been tweeting out some of his best throws from the season including the the 50-yard, 49 or 50-yard touchdown pass in the Orange Bowl on the run. The guy's an incredible passer. I guess it's always possible he could try football for a few years, and if it doesn't work out, then go back to baseball. But I don't think he can do it the other way around. Probably not. What do we got next? Brandon Newkirk from Elmer, New Jersey. Stu and Bruce, it seems to me, assuming the number one objective is to determine the best college football team, taking the top four teams is typically more than sufficient. How often in the BCS-CFP era... When including the top four, again, in other words, not going to eight, have not been enough. The craziness of 2007 immediately comes to mind, but I'm not sure of the others. I was actually thinking about that 2007 season the other day, and who on earth would the four teams have been when everybody, I think Ohio State had one loss and everybody else had two losses. But to his point, you know, I think if you were to expand to eight teams, it gives more people the opportunity to say they were a playoff team. I'm not sure it changes who wins the national title. Probably not. Um, again, I think... I think it's okay if you have, you know, a lot of times, and I don't want to basketball and football are apples and oranges, but I think sometimes the opening rounds of the tournament can be a lot of fun, and that adds to the spectacle and adds to the storyline. I mean, we didn't certainly have that in the first, you know, semifinal games. So I think it's, you know, I think there's something to be said for you put more teams, give them more to play for, you know, to get into later in the season. It makes... You know, it would make the Pac-12 title game more interesting. It would make the Big 12 title game more interesting. So I think, you know, that expression "rising tide lifts all boats" from that perspective. I think it would be. I think it would be very good for the sport. Ryan Stewart in Buford, Georgia. Stu and Bruce, which school will get the bigger bowl bump heading into 2019? Auburn or Texas? Or is there another team that'll get even more hype based on a bowl performance? It's got to be Texas, right? Yeah, I would think so. I mean, Texas, you know, handled Georgia at one point. They're up 28 to seven. You know, I think people are waiting. People are waiting for it to anoint Texas as back, right? Uh, with Auburn, Auburn is so wildly unpredictable. It's like if I'm an Auburn fan, I'm like, just leave us be. Don't even talk about us because that's when we're dangerous. When you guys start getting, you know, looking at us like sweet, then all of a sudden, right. bad things happen. So, you know, if you're Auburn, just just let me be, and then I'll sneak up on you. I'm Auburn made my early top 25, and I'm, they, I'm, I'll fully admit they probably wouldn't have if they had, say, well, certainly if they had lost to Purdue in that bowl game much, uh, rather than put up 70 on them. That wasn't that the score? Or no? 63-14, I think, was the final. Should that bowl result really be any reflection of how they're going to be next season? No. But it's natural to get sucked into that a little bit. 
Okay. Um, okay, this one from Roy has a little bit of a wind-up, but bear with it, because it's a compliment that I want to read. I just wanted to say I've been a fan of your podcast since the Lost episode, way back in 2010. I have two daughters now, 10 and 8. There's a lot of banging going on in the background. Now. Yeah, we're looking for the Lost episodes, too. <laughs> I have two daughters now, 10 and 8, and I used to run five miles each morning with them in their double stroller, and then... They started running, and your podcasts have always been a part of this journey. Thank you very much, Roy. And here's how you come up, Bruce. We actually saw Bruce at our hotel in Columbus before the Nebraska game. I would have said hello and thank you, but he seemed busy, so I didn't want to bother him. Oh, I'm sorry you didn't. I would always appreciate that. Well, he has an actual question now. Ready? Okay. Okay. Is Dana Holgerson the smartest cat in the room? If the playoff does expand to eight teams, he has just created a path exponentially easier for him to reach the playoffs regularly. But he has to wait three to four years, a small price to pay for a few years to build this infrastructure. I would imagine this was part of the selling point for Houston, correct? That's a pretty big gamble you're making, that they're going to A, expand to eight, B, have a guaranteed spot for a group of five, and C, that would happen within the next three to four years. It might not happen for another six years. Yeah, I think Dana Holgerson was smart because I think he knew that he was one not-so-great year away from being on the hot seat in in Morgantown, and he'd been there a while. Look, if, unless you're Nick Saban, you don't get to stay somewhere seven years and not people start to get a little tired of you. So this resets his clock. The big booster there slash basically de facto AD, Tillman Fertitta, was going, is going to put out $4 million a year and give him a big salary pool for his assistance. And Dana loves Houston to begin with. I mean, that's I don't want to say it's a no-brainer because it is going from a – a big 12 job to a group of five job, but it's about as close to probably a no brainer as that situation could ever get. I would look at it this way. If you're him, realistically, they are not going to contend for playoff bursts in this current system, but I, he didn't particularly come particularly close to that at West Virginia either. They were kind of a perennial eight and four kind of team. So, you know, his goal there is win that conference. And if you win that conference, you're going to be on the very short list of teams to be in that New Year's Six Bowl. And uh, if he does go to a New Year's Six Bowl, it'll be the first one for him, I believe, since uh, that the, the infamous 70-35 uh, game in, against Clemson. Yeah, the stiff game, as I like to happen. I like to refer to it. It's funny, Next. you remember it for that. I remember it as the game that caused Dabo to fire Kevin Steele and hire Brent Venables, which is maybe it might have been the most important moment of that whole run. Yeah, uh, I eagerly await Max Olson's oral history of that game. I was just thinking the other day we could use, or maybe missed all your Alabama stuff, that maybe somebody should do an oral history of the Brian Dayball era at Alabama. You know, we haven't talked about this. I did a uh, one NFL game. It was Lions-Bills. Brian Dayball is the offensive coordinator there and is a really charming guy, which, you know, I don't know if any of the Alabama uh, media guys, because they were around him at least a little bit, I had no no frame of reference for him that whole time he was there. Well, they no, they weren't around him much because of the, you know, if you covered him, he was there for one year, you would have gotten him at preseason media day and the two bowl media days, and then he yeah. was off to the NFL. Yeah, I mean, Brady Quinn had played, had been his quarterback at two of his OC stints, so he knew him really well, but he was just like, he was a very, he was a funny guy, had a good sense of humor, so I enjoyed uh, my little time around him. Hey, he came in, he got his That's ring. And then he and then he moved on. He got the most you possibly could out of a year with Nick Saban. Nick David Eisen asks Stu and Bruce, USC fans are crucifying Lynn Swan for the Cliff Kingsbury debacle in large part because of that tiny $150,000 buyout, but I don't get it. Do college assistant coaches usually have buyouts if they're offered pro head coaching jobs? Would Kingsbury have signed a contract 
with a buy big buyout, could anyone have anticipated that a pro team would just would hire a just fired college guy as their head coach? I think, and David's a lawyer, and he's somewhat of a neighbor of mine. I think, as he would understand as a USC person, so USC's not a public school, so we don't know the inner workings of their contracts. And so there's a lot of murkiness that goes in, goes into this situation. I'll say this. If Cliff Kingsbury did do some kind of deal where there was no flexibility for him, because, you know, we had talked about this a lot back when he was, you know, connected to USC initially, there was a lot of NFL interest in him. Now, did anybody think for sure he was going to get a head coaching job? That seemed like a stretch, but there was interest in him for that situation. And then obviously it heated up. So, like I said, we don't know exactly what the parameters of his deal were, but I think there's a lot of unique stuff that was involved. A lot of guys don't have, you know, I don't, I don't know if they have the flexibility to even think they'd be a candidate for those things when they do these deals. So I don't know. I really, and the answer is I just don't know what was in that deal. And I think what people, you know, USC is not going to get the benefit of the doubt right now because all the stuff that's gone on around that program. And I don't think Lynn Swan's going to get the benefit of the doubt. And it looked petty I think, and their response was kind of, I don't, it wasn't measured, but it was like just kind of shoulder shrug of like, you know, people are saying you're blocking this guy from interviewing. And it sure seems like he's interviewing and, and a lot of that stuff just didn't add up. So I don't know. I mean, much in the same, you know, for the opposite reasons, I think USC is going to be a fascinating team to watch this year. I remember at the time, the re- the biggest reason I was surprised he took that job was not why would you take the USC job? It has obvious appeal, but that he, by doing so in, in whatever that was, early December, that he was just taking himself off, seemingly taking himself off the NFL coaching carousel because that wasn't going to happen for another month. So, but like you said, I think at the time they thought the competition was NFL OC jobs and they didn't want him to, to leave them for an NFL OC job. And maybe $150,000 would be a deterrent for that, but not to be an NFL head coach. There aren't a lot of those jobs. If somebody offers you one, you got to take it. Yeah, I think that's the part that makes it really, I don't know, suspicious, not suspicious, but just like, I think the timing was something where he had to do it. And I think at that point, he felt like he had to do it. And if you're USC, you got some positive publicity, but man, it came back back on you twice in not a good way. Yeah, why don't we end with um, this email from Don Hartman in Reading, Pennsylvania. It's not a question really, but uh, it's an interesting one to bring up. Remember we were talking about historically great offenses and basically arguing with each other about 2005 USC and uh, 2018 Alabama? Mm-hmm. Well, he objects. <laughs> he wants okay. to know, he thinks that the, mo- the modern standard should not be 05 USC, but in fact, 1994 Penn State, whose skill talent was Kerry Collins, Kajana Carter, Bobby Ingram, Freddie Scott, Mike Archie, Kyle Brady, Joe Juravicious, not to mention two really good fullbacks in John Whitman and Brian Milne, and an offensive line that might have been the best one ever at Penn State, featuring two future NFL All-Pro guards, Jeff Hardings and Marco Rivera, and a tackle, Andre Johnson, who was a first-round draft pick the following year. So he wants to know our humble opinion, 05 USC or 94 Penn State? Sorry, I'm going to go with 05 USC. I mean... You know, it's not great to use the NFL as a metric, but like, I I don't know. I, I just think if you ask me to go position by position on that group, I'm going to take Reggie Bush and Lendell White over that backfield. I know Kajarna Carter was a stud and he was, a, you know, he's a really good running back. But those guys were 
about as good a one-two punch as I feel like I've seen in college football in in any era. Liner was really, really good in that offense. They had really good receivers. Their offensive line was really underrated. I just think that the dimension that Reggie Bush was so different, I feel like, than uh, just about anybody else. You know, I mean, again, and there's some probably recency bias because that team you're, that he's talking about, that was you were probably like a junior in college, and I don't know if I was working as an adult at that point. So that's exactly right. It's hard for me to really. I mean, he's making a very compelling game, obviously, but I wasn't covering the sport yet at that time, the way certainly the way I was by the time we got to O five USC. I think you, you said the NFL, not using the NFL. I mean, both teams are kind of full of guys who were college stars who didn't live up to it in the NFL, right? I mean, mm-hmm. who are you taking, Kerry Collins or Leinert? They both had kind of similar... I mean, Kerry Collins probably had a longer NFL career. Yeah. You know, I think Dwayne Jarrett is still, to me, one of the best college receivers I can remember, but for whatever reason didn't do anything in the pros. Bobby Ingram, at least, was a... I want to say, well, he, you know, he was a starting receiver in the NFL for, what, five years or so? I would guess. I don't even, I don't even, uh, you know, I remember he, he was around, you know, it's just like, again, I, I think a lot of people, even Reggie Bush was such a phenomenon in college. And obviously he had his issues with the NCA and he had, he had some good, you know, some good years in the NFL, but he wasn't this transcendent player. Like there are some guys like where you remember, you know, remember Rocket Ishmael being one of the most exciting players you've ever seen and his pro career was just not that. And there are certain certain guys who I think there's there's a flash to them, but then it's not like they have the careers of, you know, I just saw this guy this week, Clinton Portis or something, you know, where it's like they end up having like a borderline Hall of Fame career. It's interesting. So we're talking about this as one of the most talented offenses of all time. It just shows you how much football has changed because, you know, you look at Oklahoma this year, Alabama up until the postseason you know, we now, it's almost like we now, to even be in the discussion now, you have to be on a team that scores 45, 50, 60 points every single week. I can acknowledge how loaded that Penn State offense was, and now I look up their schedule, and they beat number 14 USC, 38 to 14, number 5 Michigan, 31 to 24. They did lay a whoop-ass on number 21 Ohio State, 63 to 14, uh, and then in the Rose Bowl, 38-20 against Oregon. So it's not like those were off-the-chart scores. And I don't think USC that year was necessarily doing that every week either. Just the players, you know, that the, how loaded they were at every position. Yeah, it's fun. These are fun questions. And I'm sure, you know, hopefully we'll have some other people dig up some ones that are like that, which are, you know, anecdotally, because obviously, you know, if you're a diehard Penn State and grew up about it, you kind of have that connection to it. Yeah. Well, we got eight months to kill. If you've got a nominee for what's the criteria you want to say here? We gonna say best Somebody, offense or, or most low, yeah. most talented yeah, most talented like. most talented college offense of the last forty years. That works. Okay, if you've got a nominee for amongst your favorite team or any team that you remember, send them to the at gmail.com, along with your other regular emails. Ideally, we'd like to get back on a normal schedule. I don't think it's gonna happen just yet, so just uh, bear with us. But obviously, if you're a subscriber to the Audible, you'll know when we record a new episode because it'll pop right in there on your phone. We'll see you next time. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to The Audible on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a five-star review while you're at it. It helps get the word out. Thanks to Trader Joe's for being our presenting sponsor. 
Our producer is Nick Fink. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. You can download their music on iTunes and Spotify. Follow me, Stu, at SL Mandel on Twitter and Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB. And subscribe to The Athletic if you haven't done so already. You can try it for free, seven-day free trial at theathletic.com slash free trials. So come on, get over here. Ah, yeah. Whoa, whoa. Talk about it for years. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.